0: Please stand for the scripture reading for today. It's found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 23. And today's message is going to be centering on verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come in to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven on that day man will say to me lord lord did not i prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name and then i will declare to them i never knew you depart from me you worthless and lo- you workers of lawlessness you may be seated
1: Well, good morning once again. When you think of the modern evangelical gospel presentation, what do you think of? What is emphasized in the typical modern gospel presentation in order to try and bring about a response, some kind of decision from the hearer? How are the dangers of the human condition, the hope of the gospel, and the true nature of the Christian life conveyed? When you hear these typical modern gospel presentations, what are the people actually called to do? I want you to think about how that typical modern gospel call may differ from the gospel proclamation of John the Baptist. Of Jesus and the Apostles how did they emphasize the danger of the human condition how did they explain the nature of the Christian life the hope of the gospel and what did they call upon people to do in response what is my suspicion that many people who claim to love the gospel are not able to accept the gospel message that Jesus himself gives, the way that he describes the Christian life. I'm concerned that many professing Christians have become so enamored by the promises of an easy Christianity, both in the entrance into it and the living out of it, that when they hear what Christ said, they will not be able to reconcile the warm glow of our modern gospel with the hard reality of Christ's radical call. So who are we going to believe? Whose gospel message are we going to accept? What gospel are we going to follow? Well, for several months, we have been studying Christ's exposition of the Christian life in the Sermon on the Mount. We have referred to it as his messianic manifesto, his paradigm-shifting message of the new reality that the people found themselves in because of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. Last week, we completed the main body of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and beginning this morning, we will see the natural end to that teaching in Christ's call for a decision. In essence, we have been studying the gospel presentation from the author of our faith. Now we will get to see how Christ himself draws that message to a conclusion. We will see how easy, how inviting, how attractive Christ makes the gospel and the Christian life seem. Remember, verse 12 essentially closed the teaching portion of the Sermon on the Mount by giving us a short summary or an essence statement of the law and the prophets. It conveyed a very familiar theme common to many religions and philosophies, yet in a way that remained distinctly and uniquely Christian. Starting in verse 13, then we'll see this morning, Jesus is warning about the consequences of actually accepting his call, of taking action at his message, or remaining with the majority. Verses 13 and 14 make clear that action is necessary, that people must do something in order to, in order to escape Destruction. We have to remember that the whole message in the Sermon on the Mount, the whole gospel of Matthew and the proclamation of Christ and John the Baptist before him was all predicated on the arrival of the kingdom of heaven and the certainty of conflict that there would be between God's kingdom on this earth and the kingdoms of the world. That judgment was soon to follow behind the arrival of God's kingdom, of the reign of God on this earth. Those who would be citizens of this kingdom of heaven must enter the proper gate and walk the proper path. The gate and the path that Christ says few find. They must separate themselves from the masses, from the many, Martin Lloyd-Jones Lloyd- said that the gate is so narrow that in order to pass through it, one must leave their old self behind. That there is not enough room to pass through the gate with, with the new man and the old man, so one must be left. So we cannot enter unless we let go of the old. Christ's disciples must escape the path of the multitude, and they must take the hard way. It literally is a matter of life or destruction. Wasn't well, moved beyond that in verses 15 through 20. Christ warned of the presence of false teachers, of, of false professors of his name. They will often appear as though they are on the same narrow path as the Christian, or else they will stand apart by themselves and, and call with soothing voices calling people to come, come to me, come over here. This is the way that you need. They will be known by their fruits. And Lord willing, we'll be looking at those verses next week to understand what Jesus meant when he said, you will know them by their fruits. Jesus had given the hearer everything they needed to know to be able to discern the citizen of the kingdom of heaven from the pretender. They must walk the hard path themselves and Christians could and should expect that any true disciple of Christ would be walking the same difficult path that they had been taught to walk. You see, there is no such thing as a disobedient Christian, at least not consistently and not ultimately there are those who obey Christ and there are those who are pretenders and false converts. Following that, we will get to a passage that I have said many times before is one of the scariest passages in all of Scripture. Because among those pretenders, among those who are false converts, will be those who boldly proclaimed the name of Christ in this life. There'll be those who performed great and mighty religious works in front of the people who will stand before God and be able to speak honestly of things they have done while claiming the name of Christ. Yet their fate is the same fate as the rest of those who remain on the easy and broad path. They will be rejected and destroyed. That warning is not given, as we might fear or suspect, to make Christians continually fearful and doubtful. Those These warnings are given as a mercy from God. Because of the reality of coming judgments, these warnings are a mercy from God to strip away false assurance, to strip away any pretense that false religion can do anything for us. And instead, to wake people up and call them to true faith and obedience to Christ. And finally, after that, in verses 24 through 27, Jesus illustrated the fate of those who heeded the words of Christ, who built themselves on the foundation of the rock, and distinguished them from those who remained on that broad path of shifting sand. When the time of testing comes, and it will, come the result is either standing strong and secure or being crushed and great is the fall well, i would ask you to join me in prayers as we prepare to focus on our text for this morning father even when your word is is hard and it cuts It is yet beautiful. It is yet mercy to us. It is yet sweetness on our lips. Father, do the transforming work in our hearts and our lives by your word. I do not seek to change those who will hear this message because I can speak well or because I can be convincing or because I can scare because of the hard reality of the words. I have hope that that there will be transformation, that there will be those who will come to faith in Christ or those who will repent of sin and turn once again to Christ in greater faithfulness, that you will actually work and perform transformative work and actions in our lives. I have confidence in that because your spirit is among us that you had promised that when you went away you would send the helper that it would be better for us if you went away so that the helper might come to remind us of these things to to confirm your word in our hearts to teach us what is true what is right what is beautiful and to conform us to Christ Father we ask for that we pray for that We are dependent on that. We need you. Be honored by us today, Lord. and Make us more like Christ. We want to be more pleasing to you. Praise things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, as Jesus began to wrap up his Sermon on the Mounts, he told the gathered crowd around him that they must enter by the narrow gates. Well, if we're going to grasp the significance of this call of Christ, these stark words that he gives at the end of this sermon, we need to remember to whom Jesus is speaking. He was not primarily preaching to heathens or open idolaters. In fact, he was not even primarily speaking to the Pharisees or the scribes. He was preaching to God-fearing Jews who had every desire to actually honor God and follow God, to people who actually cared about God's law. It is to this religious and moral group of people that Jesus said that they must make this major change in their trajectory They, these moral, upstanding, religious people, they must enter by the narrow gates. Regardless of how genuine these people were in their pursuit of God and their pursuit of righteousness as they understood it, there was a different path that they had to enter. There was a different gate that they must walk through if they would have any part of the kingdom of heaven. You see, one can be very genuine in their religious devotion and yet be genuinely wrong. We cannot be fooled into believing that a person's good intentions with their religion or a person's good intentions with their good works somehow make up for believing and living in error. Unless a person enters by the narrow gate no matter how good of a person they may appear to be, no matter how devoted, no matter how selfless and pious we can see that their actions are, unless they enter by that narrow gate, they are on the path to destruction. And it does not matter how likable they are. It doesn't matter how kind they have been to us or how much we really want them to be okay. There is only one entrance that leads to life. Well, I'm sure most of you already understand when I say this one gate, what I am speaking of. But in case there is any doubt, Christ leaves no doubt of what this gate is. In John ten seven through nine. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. However, a person has tried to find their way to God, every other way apart from Christ is the way of thieves and robbers. Jesus is the only way to God. And Jesus' way is the only way to God. Of course, that may sound harsh. That may sound arrogant. That may even be bigoted by our modern culture sensibilities. Yet it remains true. The consequences of a person's response to the call of Christ determines their eternal fate. No less than it did for the first century Jew who was hearing these words as he taught. So why did the religious people, these people that I said were, were good, upstanding, moral Jews who actually cared about the law of God, why did this crowd need to enter a new path through a narrow gate? The same reason that each and every one of us has needed to enter by that narrow gate. Since the fall of humanity, all of humanity has been on the wrong path. Everyone is bound for destruction because the path to destruction is the default path for sinful mankind. It is the path on which we start. Jesus said that the, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. The path to destruction is not a path that a person must make a conscious decision to enter. It is not a path that they must decide to travel down. It is not a path that only the out of control wicked people are on. This path is not lined with these with pride and rainbow flags to make absolutely obvious everyone's rejection of God. It's a path that every single one of us was born on. And unless we follow Christ, and we obey his radical call, we will see that path to the end. As I said, as the default path, we do not have to make a decision to walk down this easy, well-traveled path. The gospel call, to reject the gospel call, to reject Christ's call to enter by the narrow gate, is in essence to confirm your choice to stay on that, that wide and easy path. Because the gospel is a call to take a different way, It is a call to make a radical change, and not just in what you profess to believe. It is a call to make a radical change in how you live, in the very direction that you walk in this life. This admonishment reminds us of Jeremiah's placing the way of death and the way of life before the nation of Judah in Jeremiah 21.8. Yet the situation as Christ describes it in our text this morning is even more dire. Jesus does not simply tell those who are gathered around him that you must make a choice between life and death. He told them that they were already on the path to destruction, that judgment was coming, that doom was at hand. And he told them what they must do to escape Fearfully, the broad path to destruction can be described in much the same language that many soft and winsome so-called preachers try to ascribe to Christ's call to discipleship and obedience. It is easy, it is inviting, and it is incredibly attractive to carnal men. that shouldn't be too surprising. Since a big part of why people talk that way about the gospel is because they were trying to make it appealing to men who are carnal. Want to make it appealing to those who hate Christ. On the one hand, we can sympathize with that approach because we want so badly for people we care about to be saved. We want it so badly that we want to be able to dress up the gospel in clothes that even a hardened, sinful, rebellious person can accept. We want to make it easier for them to accept. Part of us wants to be able to present a message to them that doesn't require them to weep over their sin, doesn't require them for them to be broken in humility before God. We don't want them to have to repent. We want them just to be able to happily accept the wonderful treasure that will make everything better in their life. So we can sympathize with the desire to distort the message. On the other hand, those who peddle that sort of counterfeit gospel often do so because they are much more concerned with the praise of men than they are with the approval of God. That kind of message gets you invited on many more talk shows and allows you to keep the good graces of the cultural movers and shakers. Don't get me wrong, beloved. The true gospel of Christ is beautiful. The true gospel of Christ is attractive. It is liberating. It is inviting and wonderful. It is all of these things. But only to those whose hearts have been changed, only to those who have been given eyes to see. To the mind set on the things of this world, the gospel is foolishness. Yet to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To dress up the work of Christ in clothes that attract God-hating rebels is to rob it of its radical transforming power and glory. To do so is as though to take a young and pure bride and instead of presenting her in modesty and beauty to her faithful prepared bridegroom, instead you dress her lewdly according to the fantasies of wicked men so that she might gain as much widespread approval as possible. As if the approval of the masses, unworthy as they may be, is better to be desired than the approval of the one for whom she was intended. May we never be so faithless with this precious gift we have been given in the gospel. There is nothing special that a person must believe to be able to walk that wide and easy path. And there is nothing save obedience to Christ that a person can do to be excluded from it. Many claims of truths, many paths to God or paths to enlightenment walk alongside each other on this path. They may shout at one another, they may pronounce damnation on one another. Yet they all race towards the same end. On this wide and easy path, you will find religious zealots. You will find pious legalists. You will find moralists. You will find overall good people. On this path, you will also find open and rebellious sinners, blasphemous revilers, murderers, rapists, and all sorts of scum imaginable. Many will look down on one another as they walk this path. But their destiny is the same. On this path, one can be as good or as bad as they want to be. We will find religious and atheist alike. And there will be many who call themselves Christians to be found on this broad and easy path. The reality is that all will perish unless they leave that path and enter through the narrow gate. Jesus said that the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. Well, we're going in just a moment to be able to consider the flip side of that argument. But for now, we want to look at one unavoidable consequence of what Jesus is saying. The many here are, are, as we will see later on, opposed with the few that find the path. This many depicts the masses of people, the, the majority of people. Every path, so every single option, every single entrance other than this narrow gate leads to destruction. It's all on the same path. In the result, every other way Every way other than Christ leads to eternal death and judgment. Every other worldview, every other religion, every other faith, philosophy, or moral system, every one of them other than Christ leads to destruction. There is no benefit in any of them because they all lead to damnation. There's a very sobering reality in this message of Christ. He is the only way to life. And everything else leads to death. Look at the world around us. Most of the world's population claims a worldview or a religion that actually denies the gospel that Christ proclaimed even if we limited our view to those who claim to be Christians, we will see that even there, there are many that make the claim of Christ, be it because of their nationality or their culture or their birth. Yet, it is proven otherwise by the fruit that is plainly evident in their lives. Most perish on the easy path. At the very least, this was true for the immediate audience of Christ. Most of the first century Jews, these Jews who had been waiting for the Messiah, who feared God, who wanted to obey the law, most of them remained on the broad path. They rejected the narrow gate and the narrow way. Yes, there were many who were saved and there are many who are being saved because God has always kept for himself a remnant. And if you think of that first generation who heard these words of Christ, who had the very Son of God walking in their presence, they were met with abuse and persecution by the hands of their own countrymen. They were betrayed by their family members unto death. And that judgment that was promised by Christ fell hard on that generation before that generation faded away. This warning warning certainly proved true for those people to whom Jesus gave this call. However, the promise of persecution for those who believe does not stop at that first century believer. It also does not mean that the kingdom and the gospel would be impotent and ineffective. We must guard against the modern evangelical tendency to assume a defeatist mentality that believes that evil will win the day. That it's going to just get worse and worse, and there's nothing that Christians can do. And that it's just going to get worse until Christ finally comes. Though many of you, many of us, I grew up hearing this kind of teaching that the world was just going to get increasingly evil, and the church was just going to be increasingly beat down and ostracized and cast to the side. Until a time when Jesus would come, and like in the time of Noah, when everybody had gone their own way. Yet that isn't the future that Jesus promised. Jesus did not proclaim a kingdom that would be so ineffective and powerless. You must remember his arrival constituted the beginning of the kingdom of God on this earth. We must ask ourselves, how did Jesus speak about the future of his kingdom, this kingdom that was at hand? And then consider whether or not we believe him and whether or not we have the right understanding of the unfolding of history. Jesus spoke of a kingdom that would expand through his church, against which the gates of hell could not prevail. The gates of hell could not stop the advance of his church. See that in Matthew sixteen eighteen, Jesus likened the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed, which started out as the smallest of seeds in the garden. Yet when it was grown, it towered over all the other plants and gave shade to the birds of the air. Matthew thirteen thirty one and thirty two, the kingdom was also like a little leaven that was added to a larger amount of flour, and in the end, all of the flour became leavened. Matthew thirteen thirty three. That doesn't sound like Jesus expected his kingdom to struggle and remain but a fringe hope on the outskirts of society throughout history. Does it? I recently heard some Christian brothers discussing something I thought was quite interesting along this line. They recounted that all Christians often talk as though they're just fearful of the contagion of the world that will enter within the Christian circles and cause destruction and ineffectiveness. And to be sure, yes, there are many times where worldly ideologies and philosophies have come to rule the day in institutions that used to be Christian. But here is the thing. If you look at the biblical picture and the way that Jesus himself describes what will be the growth of his kingdom on this earth, the reality is more that the contagion that cannot be stopped is a better description for the kingdom of Christ in this world. As it works its way throughout all the worldly systems, as it gains victory after victory, conforming this world, ultimately, according to the plan of Christ as the leaven in the flower that will ultimately weaken and destroy the systems of this world and will tower over it as the mustard plant does the other plants in the garden. So we must hold these two truths in balance. The path that Jesus' disciples must walk is a hard path. We are called to walk the hard way. We are promised trials and persecutions on account of Christ. That is true, and beloved, you must know that and be prepared for that. You must decide ahead of time how you will respond when you face persecution, when your means of supporting your family is on the line, when your life is on the line. And yet... We have the promise of Christ that the kingdom of heaven is advancing. That Christ is placing all of his enemies underneath his feet. So Christ's reign is victorious and its kingdom his kingdom's citizens suffer. And there is no contradiction between these terms. Well, I take the time to express both of these truths this morning, even though our text clearly really is focused on the hard way, the persecution and trials that the Christian will face. Because if we know, if we really know, as Jesus promised, that the cause of Christ, that the securing of our eternal glory and joy Will be if we truly understand that that is being accomplished, that is being advanced, even while we suffer, we'll be better able to endure the trials and the difficulties that we will face in this life. That we can trust that this path, this hard, this narrow, this difficult path does in fact lead to life. That is not an empty promise. Because we know that Christ's kingdom cannot be overcome. That in his victory, we do have victory. Christ, in light of his kingdom message, called the crowd to action. He told them to enter in by the narrow gates and not stay Sorry, and then to stay on the narrow way. saw earlier that the gate through which they must enter is Christ himself. There are no other options. And there is no mass entrance. Each person enters onto that path solely based on what Christ has done in them and for them. Jesus calls those who heard his message to respond. He called them to action. See, many will say that they have faith. Many claim to be believers. They claim to have faith in Christ. Yet faith that does not drive a person to actually follow Christ through the narrow gate and down the narrow path is no faith at all. We can picture like this, and I pray that this is helpful. Picture a group of people that are standing on the edge of a large woodland and it's next to this raging river. They are content with their situation. They are at peace until someone comes and tells them a fantastic story. That there is a huge forest fire that is moving in on them throughout the forest, pinning them against this river. If they stay where they are, eventually the fire will catch up with them and they will be destroyed. Even though the people can't see the fire yet or feel its heat, some become convinced of the danger. And they begin to worry. The stranger tells them that there is a way to cross the river and find safety on the other shore. He points to a single fallen tree that spans the distance of the river. The fire is so big and pressing in on them, there is nowhere else that they will be safe, except for on the other side of this raging river. Some of the people ignore the stranger, even though they sense the danger that is looming and they scatter off in different directions, each of them to perish. Others debate on whether or not that single log spanning the river is indeed safe, if it will carry them to freedom, to their salvation. In the midst of all this, one man looks at the log, looks across the river, even begins to smell the smoke from the fire making its way toward them, And he boldly proclaims that he believes that this log is our way to safety. And based on his belief that the log would lead them to safety, he is saved. Even though he never crosses the river. Well, that sounds absurd, does it not? if he truly believed there was danger and he truly desired the safety on the other side and he believed that that log was the one way to escape the destruction that was upon him, surely he would have crossed. So whatever he thinks he has, it is not faith. In that scenario, faith is the belief that the log will hold and it drives a person to cross the river for what they greatly desire. Beloved, true faith causes action. Any other faith is no faith at all. Only those who recognized their danger and acted on the faith that that tree was able to get them to the other side escaped their destruction. Of course, there are limitations to any kind of analogy or picture we can paint. But I think there is helpfulness in that. There is a very specific and narrow path that leads to life. People are not, as so many of us have been taught to believe, they are not saved because they are well-meaning in whatever they choose to believe. They are saved only because they enter through Christ Yet the narrowness of Christianity does not end end there, does not end just with having to enter through the narrow gates. Jesus not only said that the gate was narrow, he said that the way that leads to life is narrow. Many want to describe the Christian life as easy. Just do a little less of the bad stuff. Do a little more of the good stuff. Just love Jesus and be nice to your mama. And there you have it. Many others try to say that it's not really important how a person lives after they have accepted Jesus. Entering through the narrow gate, accepting that the one name by which we must be saved is enough just to say we believe. Beloved, you cannot enter by Christ and then continue to walk on the broad path as if sanctification and holiness were optional to the Christian life. You also cannot bypass Christ and seek by a severe lifestyle to mimic the life of obedience that Christians are called to, as if one could earn their salvation by acting a little more Christian. These words of Christ reject both of these attempts as false and worthless. The gate is not the only thing that is narrow. The path that leads to life is as well. The path that leads to life, what we call the Christian life, is every bit as exclusive and narrow as the gate through which we begin that journey. Just look at how Christ described the life that he called these disciples to. The life that he called his audience to as he called them to accept this message. Accept the warnings of judgment. Repent and be made right with God and follow him in radical obedience. This is how he described it. Just in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew. Matthew five ten through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 10, 37 and 38. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy than me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will the profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Matthew 19, 25 and 26. But when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Just one more from the gospel of John in chapter 15, 18 through 20. If the world hates you, Beloved, this is the narrow path. This is the path where persecution and suffering is the guarantee. It's not a byproduct. It's a promise. It will happen. It's it's part of God's plan. The path that we are called to is not only just to follow or to express our belief or our willingness to be labeled as a Christian. Is a call to pick up our cross, the instrument of torture and death that the Romans made famous, to pick up our cross, to deny ourselves, all so that we can gain our lives by losing them. That is the Christian life. It is hard. It is a narrow path. And it is the only way that leads to life. That is what Christ calls us to in this life, if we would enter by faith into him. The Christian life is anything but easy. And yes, it certainly matters. We cannot bring the broad way of the world with us, that easy way, that easy flowing path of least resistance way that the world follows. We cannot bring it with us through the narrow gates. With Christianity is not living the old way on a new path. It is living a new way on the new path. The path to life begins with a small and narrow gate and continues down a narrow path. So what Christ said next should not surprise us in the least. Those who find it are few. This is the flip side of the many that were on the path to destruction. Few travel the narrow path to life and eternity with Christ. And this isn't an isolated teaching. If the majority of even the religious moral population in the days of Christ were going to persecute the true disciples of Christ, what could be said about everyone else everywhere else? It is, after all, the intention of Christ that his disciples would stand out, that they would be noticed, that they would be obvious to an unbelieving world, that they would be as salt to slow down the decay and to give God's savor to the world, that they would be as the light on the hill that cannot be hidden we can look to the way that Luke recorded this passage in his recounting of Jesus' teaching in Luke thirteen, twenty-three through twenty-four. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. There does seem to be very few people these days willing to accept the reality of these words of Christ. It seems impossible to us that it should be this way. It seems unfair. How could God let this happen? That only few, whatever few means against the many, will enter into heaven. A.W. Pink wrote this about that. And why is it that there are scarcely any among us left who really believe that only a few will reach heaven? There can only be one answer, because it is now generally held that heaven can be obtained on much easier terms than those that were prescribed by Christ. The adulterous generation in which our lot is cast are quite sure that heaven can be reached without treading the only way which leads there. And the kingdom of God can be entered without passing through much tribulation. That we may be disciples of Christ without denying self, taking up our cross and following him. They do not believe that if their right eye offends, it must be plucked out. And if their right hand offends, it must be cut off. They do not believe that if they live after the flesh, they shall die. And that only through the Spirit. If they mortify the deeds of the body, shall they live. They are fully persuaded that a man can serve two masters and can succeed in making the best of two worlds. In short, they do not believe the gate is as straight nor the way as narrow as Christ declares it to be. Beloved, we cannot afford to confuse the free gift of salvation through faith with the narrowness of the gate and the difficulty of the path to life. The Christian life is hard. I care far too much about you to pretend it is anything else. There is no easy way to follow Christ. Our sinful flesh wars against our love for and our desire to be obedient to Christ. And we live in a world that is at war with our Savior. A a world that is at war with His kingdom. And a world that would like nothing better than to rip us out of the hand of our God. The narrow gate teaches us that it must be Christ alone. According to his life, according to his sacrifice, the narrow path teaches us that that faith—that what faith that saves us actually looks like. Said it before that many will claim that they believe. Many will claim that they have faith in Jesus, and they will say that since faith is an abstract inner experience. That no one else has any right to have any expectation on how that will manifest in someone's life. But that isn't how Jesus talked about those who would follow him. That isn't how Jesus talked about the kind of faith that would save. They forget that Jesus told us what real faith looks like. Jesus told us what real belief in him actually does. Real faith abandons everything on this earth and follows him. Real faith loves him. It loves his commandments. Real faith is real, tangible, and it is manifest in the radical life of obedience of all of Christ's true disciples. But yes, in one sense, salvation is easy. Our part in salvation is easy. God has done absolutely everything that is required for us to be saved. We are the recipients of his grace. But we must not think that because God has made our way of salvation easy for us, that the path that he has called us to walk down will be easy. Scripture clearly teaches us that the life of faith is not easy and it is not broad. We cannot rest. We must press on. We must beat our bodies. We must strive. We must struggle. We must run the race. Listen how the apostle Paul described his Christian life. In 1 Corinthians nine twenty four through 27 said, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Paul did not sit back and presume upon the grace of God. In fact, Paul would say adamantly, may it never be. He made his body his slave, so that even after all the good that he had done in the name of Christ, even after he had endured being whipped on the, on the breath of death multiple times to being stoned, to being shipwrecked, this man endured much pain and suffering for the name of Christ and yet even then he did not presume upon it but he continued to discipline himself that after all those things that he would not in the end be disqualified he understood the narrow path on which he was called to walk Well, it should not surprise us, but this has never been a very popular message. At least not the second part. Paul Washer said that it's very common, you'll hear lots of things in talking about the narrow gates. That most churches don't have a problem, at least giving lip service, that Christ is the way. That's a very common thing you'll hear in churches that have any desire to be faithful to the gospel but what is much less often spoke of is the narrow way that leads to life the sermon is for me both a labor of love and a great burden I have expect and joy because I'm excited to see what God will do in the lives of his children as they realize the fullness to which they have been called. I have confidence that the spirit will work in the people of God when they are confronted with the truth of scripture and called to something greater than they are called to be something to live greater, more faithfully, more obedient to Christ than they have done that they will heed the word of Christ in scripture and the spirit will empower them to obey. I believe that, that God will work through the preaching of his word, that his truth will conform his people. Yet I also feel burdened because there will likely be some who hear this message and the warnings of Christ and will remain content to keep on pretending and to remain on the easy path. This is a timely message for those of us who have long been exposed to Christ's teaching, who have long been taught by preacher after preacher and church after church, that simply saying we believe is enough. That simply saying a prayer at some point in our lives is enough. And that is all that we need. That means we are safe, we are secure. There's nothing to be concerned about with our religious lives. Nothing to be concerned about in our devotion to Christ. This is also a timely message for those of us who made some sort of de- decision, yet something that we have never actually acted on and followed through with to obedience. These warnings must be, for any of us in those positions, a wake-up call to act. We either need to step out in faith and follow Jesus on the narrow path we have been called to, or we need to simply stop pretending. Christians have all too often been falsely promised salvation apart from following Christ. That is simply the matter of it. That people are promised salvation apart from actually following Christ. And to follow Christ is the clearest call for those who would enter through the small gate and travel the narrow way. This ought to be a wake-up call for us. And beloved, Christ has three more hard wake-up calls for us before he finishes the Sermon on the Mount. It doesn't get any easier from here. I just want to draw this time to a close with a couple of observations. First, the majority does not determine truth. Truth is not a democratic concept. We don't get to vote on what is true and what is good and what is right. We don't get to vote on which path leads to life. Just because everyone else... Even though they present themselves as angels of light, because everyone else walks confidently down a different path, it does not mean that they have found truth and life. Do not follow the masses. Though the world runs to ruin, I urge you to trust in the words of Christ and remain steadfast on this narrow path. We will no doubt be prepared for it. It already is happening. We will be labeled as extremists. We will be labeled as intolerant bigots, as backward simpletons, as science deniers, as abusive, as insane. The truth does not change just because the world has gone mad because the world hates us and says all manner of evil things about us. God's order still stands, no matter how many degrees the world's so-called scientists have behind their names. When they reject God's reality, it is they who are blind. It is they who are fools. The world cannot turn a lie into truth by the force of its might. Second and finally, while well, this kind of warning ought not make a true Christian doubt their place and hope in Christ, and that is true, this is not a warning to cause someone who is truly following Christ, who loves him, who loves to obey him, who daily prays to be conformed more to the likeness of Christ. It is not to cause them to be fearful and to doubt. Yet it does and ought to make anyone who is simply dabbling with Christianity or unsure about how any month, how much any of these things really matter, it, it, it ought to cause them to take notice and to reevaluate their position. Beloved, if you are walking by faith the difficult path and you are struggling and you are weary, do not be dismayed. The path has been promised to us that it will be difficult. You are walking as Christ has called you to walk and following where he has told you to go. That path does lead to life. Take hope in Christ. His kingdom, his purpose cannot be thwarted by this world. He can and he will protect you and keep you. Yet if you realize today that you have not entered by the narrow gate or you are not this day walking down the narrow path then I urge you repent and believe. The broad path leads to destruction. Yet as you hear this call you still have time to enter the narrow path by Christ. You still have time to find that way that few find. You still have time to find life. All is not yet lost. Today can be the day of your salvation. Father, I pray that... Those who truly love you, who are truly in Christ, would not be unduly burdened by these words, but might still find hope and joy. Knowing that the trials and the hardships that they face are by design. There is purpose there. There is promise that it would happen. They can see the, the hope in knowing that your kingdom is advancing. Your purposes stand. Your enemies are being defeated and they will find life. Do not let your people be beaten down, but encourage them. Give them peace and hope and joy. Father, for those who yet need to repent, I pray that you make these words feel very heavy. The truth of the gospel demands a response. We cannot hear and be the same. We will either repent and believe and find life, or we will add greater damnation to ourselves for the rejection of the greater light that has been shown to us. Father, make us as a church bold. To proclaim the true gospel, willing to give the hard call of Christ to make the same demand for action, the more would see and have their eyes opened, their hearts changed, their belief, the more tongues would confess the name of Christ, more knees would bow. Now, while there is still time. She will be glorified.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Make this church a beacon mm-hmm. for the gospel of Christ. A mm-hmm. stalwart example of faithfulness. Presence in Christ's holy
0: name. Mm-hmm. Amen.